Hello everyone. Welcome to my show Career Startup Podcast, a podcast to spotlight Asian entrepreneurs and interesting leaders that I meet. Today I have with me a very fabulous guest who's joining us from Washington DC, Rohit Bhargava. Rohit, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. So Rohit, he's on a mission to inspire more non-obvious thinking in the world, and I see him as someone who's an entertaining speaker who walks and talks marketing. Is that right, Rohit? Sure. Yeah, I, I can't control how you see me, but I think that's pretty good. I'm happy with that. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, Rohit is such an amazing guy. We met as fellow speakers at a Women in Technology Summit a couple of years ago here in Washington D.C. at the Washington Post office. And you know, since then, we've stayed in touch. And I, I'm so happy to see his tremendous growth. Uh, he's now on the Wall Street Journal best-selling list of authors. He has seven books under his credit and is widely considered one of the most original speakers on disruption trends and marketing in the world rohit how does it feel to be at such a uh, you know at, at such a position in your life <laughs> i guess it uh, i guess it feels good I, i think um it's interesting for me to, whenever i am sitting there listening to people kind of read off the things that uh, that i've that i've done because i think about the the chances that i had to to do some of those things and then write some of these bios and have them written for me and and we were talking actually before the show about how this the, the virtual sessions are what we've got now right uh, but we you me many people who are professional speakers and going out there talking like we are used to being on the stage and now we can't do that anymore and so like what do we do instead and that's been like a big question for a lot of people who are in our space who do what we do that's very true so no rohit is the founder of non obvious company he's a sought after keynote speaker and has previously spent 15 years working as a marketing strategist at ogilvy and leo burnett and he also teaches marketing and storytelling as an adjunct professor at georgetown university here in the us so rohit let me get started with this the term non obvious thinking what does it really mean Not obvious thinking yeah for me is is something that I think we're missing a lot in the world which is people who don't say the same thing as everyone else. And especially I mean we started talking about events and and how many times have we been to those events where you get those panels of people and there's four people up on stage and they basically say yeah I agree with her right and it's just like the same people agreeing with the same stuff over and over again and it's just so boring and useless and so to me non obvious thinking is about encouraging a mindset in all of us where we can start to see what other people don't see and come up with better ideas as a result of that and so that's what i try and write about that's what i try and teach to people when i talk about these things because the people who are able to do that are always the ones who are the innovators they're the ones who are able to be more successful because they're thinking in a way no one else is thinking I agree so tell us three non obvious mega trends that you can share with our career startup podcast listeners so i think one of them is specifically about kind of business models and industry shifts and i it was a trend that i called flux commerce Uh, and it described the idea that there's more businesses that sit across industry lines so you have uh, companies going outside of the vertical that they're typically meant to be in so taco bell opened up a hotel crayola crayons uh started making makeup 
um, all of these companies that you know in one category have branched out into a different one. And so the, the lesson in that is that the lines between what used to be different industries are starting to blur. And that's an important lesson, I think, for all of us as we think about what business are we really in and how can we maybe pivot that, especially with what's happened in the world right now, to something that is related, but maybe in a different industry that we wouldn't have thought of otherwise. So like, to me, that's one piece of it. And the other part of that one trend is how the way that we're paying for things is starting to shift. So it's everything from subscribing to stuff and products without necessarily buying it, the nature of ownership changing. I mean, these are all big themes that have been played out in the media that people are really thinking about. Like, what does it mean to own something? Do I need to own something? Uh, can I just, get a car whenever I want one. Like, why would I buy one? Uh, and so these are causing, causing big shifts in industries. And they're also causing big shifts in how we think about what we spend money on and how we spend money. Yeah, disruptive thinking is the key, right? Because people's perception about ownership, as you rightly mentioned, has changed. You know, a lot of millennials say, for example, don't want to own a car or a house. It's more like on demand. You need things, you get things. Yeah, it's it's on demand, and it's also the the idea that we want more creative ways to pay for something. I remember uh, reading about a Airbnb that was available. I think it was in Scotland, and it was it cost like one pound a night, but if you stayed there, you'd have to stay for a minimum of uh, several weeks, and as part of staying there, you would get a job at the bookstore that was right underneath the Airbnb. So it was kind of like a job slash experience along with living in this one place. And it was all bundled together. And I think that more and more we're seeing these like, like reimaginings of things that used to be just sold in a specific way. And now they're being sold or, or at least presented in so many different ways. Reimagining your everyday living, right? People are, people yeah. are, people want experiences. You know, that's what we're craving for. Yeah, I mean, they've they've wanted, like anybody who's worked in travel, I mean, we've said this for a long time, like people want to pay money for experiences. They don't want to buy stuff anymore. And I think that that one of the biggest shifts there is that we don't just want experiences. We want transformation along with the experiences. So it's not enough to go and, and have an amazing, back when we used to be able to travel, uh, an amazing zipline adventure. Uh, if I don't come back transformed as a human uh, at the end of it. And that's a pretty high standard to try and meet for a travel experience, for example. And I think that this higher expectation is one that that we're we're all struggling with when it comes to the service or the experience of the product we're trying to deliver because we have these extreme examples that go over the top where people say, oh, well, that's what's possible. So now that's what I expect everywhere. Because before people would go to, Disney World and they would get one of these like, you know, magic bands on their arm and they'd be able to wave it in front of their hotel room or wave it to get a, buy a drink. And, uh, and once we see that, we're like, well, why do I have to leave my credit card at the bar? Like, why doesn't my room key just always work? Why can't I wear it on my wrist? Like we know this stuff is possible. So the barrier starts to get higher and it's, it's difficult. I agree. And organizations need to adapt to the consumer lifestyle and habits because everybody's asking for highest standards of, uh, you know, experiences. So totally get that. Yeah. And it, it, it's become tough because how do you say to someone, well, that's an unrealistic expectation, <laughs> right? You can't. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so it becomes really difficult then uh, to, to be in that situation where someone's saying, well, give me this and give me that. And uh, especially if you're in, in kind of startup phase, like how do you cater to that type of customer or that mindset?
you know, you've been an entrepreneur yourself with two startups under your belt. Tell us about your experience. Yeah, I am not one of those guys who, I mean, my kids are very different from me in the sense that that they've grown up being more, much more entrepreneurial. Uh, they've already kind of started to sell stuff on their own. They've started ideas for various things. I did not do any of that stuff. Like it took me uh, five years ago uh, when I turned 40, like that was when I finally became an entrepreneur. And before then I was working for someone else. And unlike what many entrepreneurs would say uh, about that experience, like I did not spend 20 years of my life suffering before I finally became an entrepreneur. Like I spent 20 years of my life working in awesome jobs that I liked doing work that I was good at. And that was really fulfilling up until I decided I wanted to do something else. And so this narrative that we often hear from people who are like, you got to be an entrepreneur and you got to hustle all the time. And like, you're born an entrepreneur. Uh, that was not my experience. I came to entrepreneurship much later. And I think in retrospect, like I have the luxury now of looking back a little bit. And I would say that I think I struggled much less as an entrepreneur than other people do because at the point when I finally became an entrepreneur doing a services-based business, doing consulting, doing speaking, like I already had a pretty big network because I built it up. So I didn't have to start with this kind of desperation moment of like, where do I find my first client? Like I started my business and, uh, and three weeks later I had Under Armour as my first client. Like, because I had people that I knew, like I was already in the industry before I left and started doing stuff. So I think this idea that you have to be an entrepreneur right from the beginning is, uh, is overrated. And the idea that you can work for someone else successfully and be happy doing it until maybe you become an entrepreneur, maybe you don't, uh, is a much more realistic way of thinking about the way we can be successful. I like your attitude because entrepreneurship is a buzzword that everybody wants to be part of. But you could be an entrepreneur, an entrepreneur, you know, whatever makes best sense for you. And I'm so glad your kids are actually taking you up, you know, taking up entrepreneurship in the right spirit at a very young age. Yeah, I think that it's sort of, I mean, the, the thing is like at a very formative time for my kids over the last five years as they've kind of become teenagers was the same time that my wife and I were becoming entrepreneurial ourselves. So I think what happened is kind of the whole family went on that journey together. Um, and what I mean by that is not just they're seeing the way we're running business, but they're also, we've done things like entrepreneur summer camp with them and given them experiences to help foster that. Not because I expect them to be entrepreneurs or because I desperately need them to. I don't care. I mean, I, but I think that the skills that that someone brings into thinking like an entrepreneur, this entrepreneurial thinking, is useful no matter what you do, even if you're working for someone else, like just the way of thinking is valuable, which is why you see so many big companies saying, we need to bring some startups in, like we need to bring in some startup founders, we need to do hackathons, we need to do all of these things. Like the one of the reasons why is because the big companies have realized that they want to inject this type of thinking into what they do. Fresh thinking is always key and organizations that are humongous, you know, need to reassess where they are. And I think that's where bringing in startups gives them a fresh sense of perception, especially with the changing times, the changing lifestyles of consumers, the way they adapt to latest technology. I think those are three key traits why startups uh, give you that fresh uh, sense of thinking. Yeah. Now, the world knows you as a marketer who loves to be on stage and speak, but you're someone who loves to listen before talking. How do you do this very well? 
<laughs> I think part of listening before talking is thinking about what someone else is trying to get out of a situation before you start focusing on what you're trying to get out of a situation. And I think to answer your question of how I'm able to do it, uh, hopefully I do it well, but but how I'm able to do it at all, I think is because I have fulfillment of all different sides of my ego. Uh, and what I mean by that is I have two main businesses. One of them involves me going on stage in front of thousands of people and being the guy, right? And if you're going to be great on stage, like you have to have a certain amount of ego, I think. You don't have to be an asshole. That's not what I mean. But you have to have enough confidence and project that confidence so that people see that on stage and they think, wow, he's really great and they're going to listen to you. Uh, and that's just part of the nature of, of doing that at a high level and getting paid to do it well. On the flip side, my other business with my wife, Chavi, is a publishing company. And as a publisher of books, you are not the front and center. In fact, sometimes you're publishing a book, your name's not on it anywhere, not even in the acknowledgments, right? Because they forget you. <laughs> but that's okay, because at the end of the day, we're delivering a service and it's about making other people look awesome and about delivering a product that makes them awesome. And that requires a lot of listening. For me, the fact that I have elements of my life where I can do that on one stage, I can be the guy on the other one. I can be in the background. Like that's very fulfilling for me because it satisfies all elements of what I want. Like nobody wants a one dimensional career and nobody wants a one dimensional life. And I think sometimes we look at what we don't have and that's why we start overcorrecting. We say, Oh, and I got to like quit my day job and go off and do this other thing and like become this other person because I've just been missing that. And I think that the people who have more balance in their life between those things, between not only their work stuff, but their family life and, and the way that they're able to be with their family and be at home and, and all of those things, like that adds a much needed perspective. And for me, like that's what allows me to be able to take the time to, to do what I do and to, to be focused on listening while I'm still creating and putting stuff out there. You know, the two things that really stand out when you shared this with me, Rohit, is one, you're very grounded. Uh, you know, you put on your different hats depending on where you are, be it on the stage or part of your consulting company. And two is, you know, when you set expectations for yourself, I think that really helps to figure out, you know, how you look at yourself in different situations. So, uh, you know, those are wonderful nuggets of wisdom, especially, you know, during this period of pandemic where everybody's in a lockdown mode. It's, it's so nice to figure out, you know, what your priorities are in your life. I think, well, thank you. Um, I, I think that one of the things that I realized very early on when, when all the events went away, and I was doing probably 40 at least, uh, maybe even more events a year. And what I mean by that is getting paid to do a one-hour talk on stage somewhere in the world. Uh, that's a lot. And one of the first things that I started thinking about when this whole pandemic happened and all of the events went away was the same thing that all of these other professional speakers who were friends of mine were thinking about, which is how do I set up my home studio? How do I get it to be, to be recreating that? And, and, and what I found was interesting was I was seeing examples of some of my much more forward thinking tech oriented friends and speakers set up these amazing home studios and they have these multiple camera angles and they have like the lights coming in and they basically set up like a whole stage for themselves at home, like in their basement. And when I thought about that, 
I realized that that was not what I wanted to do because the style of presentation I was doing was much different. So I've done, uh, I don't know, since this pandemic, I've done more than a hundred of these virtual talks, virtual sessions. So I've done a lot of these and all of them have been sitting down. I'm usually wearing a t-shirt. Sometimes I'll put on like a little bit of a, you know, collared shirt, but like, because I'm in my house and this is not a virtual background. Like this is my actual office. And at various points, I'll be like, hey, you know, here's my like a uh, board of like all my ideas and stuff that are like coming back here of all the things that we're working on. And like, I'll show people around and I'll be sitting here because these talks are conversations and it's a different presentation style. I would never do a stage presentation sitting down because the energy level is different. But what I'm finding is here when I can sit down and talk straight to the camera, like it's, uh, it's amazing because it changes the style of what you do. And so I've totally revamped the slides that I use. I use totally different content. I'm telling different stories now. I'm moving things around. So it's been a different format for me. It's not just me taking what I did on stage, translating it into my home studio and trying to make it as good as possible. That's not what I did. And that's been really valuable for me because it's allowed me to find my own style for this. I agree with you, Rohit, because you're customizing and tailoring people's experiences, uh, you know, uh, and a one solution doesn't fit all. Like what we do speaking on stage doesn't fit it when we are on camera speaking with people via virtual meetings. That brings me to something else that I wanted to share with our listeners. You recently launched a book. I know you have seven books with Wall Street best selling, uh, you know, um, author. Uh, so the latest book that you have is on virtual meetings. Can you give us a sneak peek of the, the book cover? Yeah, it's uh hold on. Should have had my props ready to go. So this is um the non-obvious guide to virtual meetings and remote work. And really I, I started writing it pretty much the week after South by Southwest got canceled, which was in March. And we released it in May. One of the benefits of owning the publishing company is I can fast track the whole thing and get a book out much more quickly and get it on shelves and everything uh in an insane timeline. And what it allowed me to do was really dissect some of the things that I had figured out over time, not only in terms of just how do you set up a camera and a microphone and just this home studio thing, so that not only the technology of it, but also the ability to be productive when you're working at home. And one of the things that I remember reading, it was, uh, it was very funny, was the three biggest distractions uh, that come with remote work. Uh, and they are the fridge, the bed, and the television. And that totally makes sense because like there's so much stuff that you could be doing around here besides working. And sometimes we think to ourselves, oh, it's so nice to not be in the office where we have all these people popping into our office and, and messing up our day with, with, their, with their stuff that they're bringing to me. But at the same time, like working remotely can be hard to avoid distractions. It can be lonely. It can be isolating. And, and these are all challenges that we have to face now because we're forced to. And the perspective that I tried to put in that book, which I think resonated with a lot of people, was, was vastly different than any other book that I found about remote work or virtual presenting because all of those books had the same premise at the basis of them, which is this is preferable. It's better to work remotely. You can be a, what they call a digital nomad, right? You can live on the beach in Bali. You can <laughs> have your own uh, thing. You can work remotely. Like, why would you even go into an office? Why would you do commutes? Like, it's so stupid. And the perspective of this book that I wrote is how do you be productive when you can't be there in person? 
because we'd like to be there in person. Like I like being there in person. I like interacting with people. I don't want to sit in my office as an introvert all day long, just doing my writing, just doing my presentations and a couple of video calls a day. Like I don't prefer that. Some people maybe do, but this was a book written not for people who prefer that. This was a book written for people who have to make this work and who have to be productive along the way. And who, by the way, if they can master some tricks to, to be, to look better, to present better, and to, 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 to deliver the messages that they want to deliver, like that's all, those are all bonuses. So that's kind of what I tried to write the book for. Those are amazing thoughts, Rohit. You know why? Because everybody now is focused on how do you reinvent yourself you know, as a digital nomad, because that's the need of the day. And how do you present yourself? How do you create that executive presence in order to get buy-in on the decisions that you make as a team? And all of this by doing them remote is a huge challenge, right? So understanding each other's cues and our personal emotions is part of it. So I'm glad you've taken the time to reflect on this and write a book about it. <laughs> Yeah, it was it was therapeutic for me. I think in some ways. I mean, I'm uh, I've always been a writer. I, I have an English major. I mean, I'm not one of those people that puts his name on a book but hires somebody else to write it. Uh, so I sit there pouring over every word. Most of my books, like Mega Trends, for example, uh, I have in my folder. We actually went through tw twelve different drafts. Like you know, send it to this, then get a copy editor, then do this draft, then do the next version. Like it goes through a lot of revisions and stuff because I'm 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 a writer. I'm always trying to do that. But this book and and these types of writing were just things that I have in my head that I have to put out. And so. Part of it is just my chance to, to put it out in a way that hopefully is useful for other people. Absolutely. And other ways in which we can uh, get the takeaways from the book through any kind of virtual trainings that you plan to provide? Uh, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> in fact, I've been working on uh, finishing up the virtual training course around this book, which should be out in the next couple of weeks. And so uh, we'll probably do a big kind of flash sale around it where it's a fraction of what it'll eventually cost uh, for people who want to pick it up. And, and the philosophy behind it is going to be very different than a lot of online courses because I've seen tons and tons of online courses and the way they're sold is, is based on volume. They say, hey, for, for 500 bucks, for actually for $497, which is for some reason what they all seem to cost, uh, for $497, you'll get 14 hours of content. And I guess there's some people in the world who think, wow, 14 hours of content, that's going to be great. <laughs> I look at that and say, there's no way in hell I have time to watch 14 hours worth of content. And why is it 14 hours in the first place? So this course is not going to be filled with all of that fluff and it's not going to be sold on volume. It's going to be sold based on the assumption that your time is valuable. And why would I waste it just trying to come up with 14 hours worth of stuff when I could tell you what you need to know in less time? So I'm not going to sell it based on time. I'm going to sell it based on value. And I'm going to say to someone, and it's going to be less expensive than that. So it's going to be, here's the course with just what you need to know with real concrete tips downloadable worksheets, like all of that stuff, all packaged together. Like that's the intent of it. That's how we'll probably do it. That's great. And we're looking forward to it. Yeah. Now, now tell me this, uh, Rohit, you've advised global brands on communication and storytelling. What is the one challenge that you see with brands becoming better storytellers? The biggest challenge, to be honest with you, in most brands is that they take whoever should be in charge of storytelling based on their job title, and they assume that they'll be a great storyteller. 
And the problem with that is that there's a lot of amazing people who work in marketing and PR and communications who are not necessarily gifted storytellers. It's not a one-to-one -one ratio. It's not like if you go into marketing and story and communications, you're automatically going to be a great storyteller. That's a different skill set. And so a lot of times what ends up happening is a companies don't acknowledge that storytelling actually matters. So that's kind of the first barrier. Let's say you do have a company that says, Hey, we need to tell stories because those stick in people's minds. They raise emotions. They cause people to remember, right? All the stuff we want our marketing to do, be persuasive, be memorable, like stories do that. So let's say a company's figured that out. Now they take the person who job title says that they should be good at that and says, okay, now in addition to all the other stuff you're doing, you're running our online advertising, you're looking at all the metrics, you're doing all these things. And by the way, now you have to also be a storyteller. And that person struggles because they haven't had any training in that. Maybe that's not their natural inclination to do. And so as a result of that, we publish things that are content, but not stories, which are not the same thing. There's no storyteller or filmmaker, I guarantee you, who would pour their heart and soul into telling a story, writing a book, filming a movie, and then go in an interview saying, I have an amazing piece of content. They don't call it content. They call it a story. They call it a film. They call it a book. Like They call it something else. Uh, but it's not content. Content is what marketers do. And so this whole idea of like content marketing, like, yeah, that's a good term for it because it's content that's trying to be storytelling E, but it's actually not. It's just uh, content. So the mindset that we need to take, I think, is to, first of all, unleash the people who do tell stories well, whether they're supposed to based on their job title or not. And that's the one thing that I see a lot of big companies not doing, which is tapping their individuals in their company who could be more gifted storytellers and making the person who's maybe in charge of the marketing and communications, instead of being the one who has to tell the stories, be the one who gathers them together from other places. You know, that's something that organizations have to reassess as part of job descriptions versus the skill sets that a marketer needs in order to get their stories out into uh, different target audiences. Now let's talk about in the light of COVID and the global crises that's happening, be it with racial injustice that you're saying, a lot of brands are struggling to adapt their stories uh, in a way that resonates with what's happening around them. What is one advice you would give to brands? I think that what they're, if I could use an analogy here, I'd say that what a lot of brands are trying to do is they're trying to uh, build a, a hurricane or tornado shelter uh, right when they see the hurricane, like in the distance. And like, that's too late. <laughs> I mean, you're not going to be able to build it in time. Uh, you should have built it a while ago so that you had a place to go when the tornado alarm went off, right? And, and so the, the problem that I think a lot of these brands are facing is that it was never really important to them. Diversity was never really important to them. Uh, being inclusive was never really important to them, apart from having a line in their, in their kind of annual statement. And that has come back to be a problem. And you can't fix it by running a new PR campaign. You can probably distract people for a little while but it doesn't really fix the problem. And so really what you're hoping is just exactly the same as if you were in a house that didn't have the hurricane shelter and the hurricane comes, you're just hiding under a table and hoping that you don't get swept away. Maybe you make it, maybe you don't. Uh, but if you're smart, as soon as the hurricane's over, the first thing you think to yourself is, man, we better build a shelter for the next time this comes. 
And if you're dumb, you'll think, well, I made it under the table last time, so maybe we should just buy another table, <laughs> right? And that's idiotic, but that's the way that some of these companies are thinking. And so to me, the biggest understanding shift that needs to happen is that we should do business in this way if we believe in it. And if we believe in it, then that will come out because people, our people, and the people who we do business with will talk about it. We don't have to talk about it ourselves necessarily. And that's, to me, a better way to do some of the CSR, some of the stuff that these companies are trying to do retroactively. You know, corporate social responsibility is something that has to be ingrained in an organization's culture rather than, you know, a, you know something that's part of the mission just for the sake of having that buzzword, uh, you know, in these challenging times. So it's high time organizations look at, you know, where do they stand in terms of, uh, you know, reacting, I should say, responding to situations and having the foresight uh, to prepare themselves for a better crisis management as well. Yeah, it's, it's sort of the idea that, uh, look, imagine you start a new company and it is three weeks old but you hire someone who has 20 years of experience in the industry. Do you start going around saying that your company has 20 years of experience? It just doesn't really seem right. And I think that sometimes that's what companies expect, that they'll just make that one amazing hire of a person who's been really dedicated to this for a long period of their lives, maybe working somewhere else. And then they'll just borrow all of that equity and say, hey, that's what we believe. Cause look, we have this person in charge of it. And obviously they're a, the thought leader, right? They're, they're amazing. And the thing is they are amazing, but that doesn't mean that you get to claim all of what they've done for their entire life and say, well, we've done that. Look at, you know, look at who we just hired. It doesn't work that way. Like in people's minds, it doesn't work that way because eventually, or maybe right away, people start seeing through that. And transparency is key in today's organizations, right? And people see through all of that. They cut through that and they figure out, hey, we understand what this organization really stands for. And sustainability, again, is a key factor in a lot of these different topics as well. Yeah, I mean, I I don't love the word transparency because... Um, Although I do think we need more transparency. Uh, the reason why I don't love it, though, is because you can be transparent about what you're doing, even if what you're doing is wrong. You can just admit it. <laughs> but that doesn't actually fix the underlying issue of what you're doing. So yes, transparency is better than hiding everything and not admitting any of this. But it doesn't mean that you are, you've checked that box off just by being transparent. Like That's not enough. Yeah, we, uh, you know, we require a lot more from organizations. So, uh, you know, that's something that organizations have to pivot uh, as as expectations are changing around them. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about your childhood, Rohit. Where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in the U.S. I was born actually in India, um, but I left when I was less than a year old. So I was just a baby when we left. And, uh, and then I grew up in the U.S. and pretty much stayed in the U.S. through college. And then I got more adventurous. I left. I lived in Australia for five years. I lived in the Philippines for a little while. And then eventually I came back. Uh, so most of my 20s, I was kind of gone exploring. 
And I grew, I was pretty lucky. I grew up doing a lot of travel. My, the reason our family moved here in the first place is because my dad had gotten a job with the World Bank uh, from India to be over in the US. And so we moved together and then, uh, and then afterwards my brother was born. So my brother was born here in the US, uh, but that was the reason we originally came. So the World Bank, I mean, it's a global institution. My dad traveled throughout his entire career. A lot of times we would go with him to all these amazing places. So, so I'm, I'm very lucky. I mean, I've seen a lot of the world. And, and so one of the toughest things for me and for us as a family has been this travel lockdown, not so much from the speaking point of view, although sometimes I miss being on stage, but just from the adventure of traveling internationally. I mean, we've done in the last couple of years, we've gone to Vietnam, Cambodia, Norway, Sweden, like we've done all of these things. We went to Africa and did the safaris and like this was just in the last couple of years. So we've now been traveling quite a bit. And so it was really a big shift for us to, now not do that. I mean, we were planning on going to the Tokyo Olympics. We're a big Olympics family. I've been to five Olympics, so I love the Olympics. And and so we were going to be in Tokyo and then those got postponed to next year and maybe they'll happen. Maybe they won't. I mean, we still have our tickets, so we'll see. Well, good luck on that. And I'm so glad you shared uh, your world as an explorer. Now tell me this, your childhood growing up as an explorer, traveling different countries, how did that help you become the trend curator you are today? I think that it gave me a chance to see that one way was not the only way. And I'm amazed at how many people I meet still today, adults, who still think that the world that they know, the way that they know it, is the way the world is. I mean, there are, are people, it'll seem crazy when, once I say it, but you'll think, yeah, I get, totally get that. Like, there are people who think that when you listen to people from other places and they have different accents, right? You're like, oh, there's an Australian accent. There's an English accent. There's an Indian accent, but they don't think Americans have an accent. They think that like the English we speak here is just English and everyone else has an accent. And it blows their mind when they realize that when they, some of these Hollywood movies that they're watching, these actors are Australian and they're putting on a fake American accent because the expectation in a lot of the Hollywood films is that the actors have an English, uh, American accent unless they're making an intentional character choice. So the default accent in a lot of these movies is supposed to be American. So all of these actors have learned how to do a good American accent, but they're faking it. And people, it blows people's minds. They're like, whoa, that person is not American? Like when they listen to that actor speak on an interview, they're like, why are they doing a fake Australian accent? And then they're like, wait, no, they're Australian. They're not American. And so like little stuff like that, right? Uh, you just start getting trained when you go out into the world and you pay more attention to different cultures. That's not a strange thing for you. I mean, I grew up in, in a household, like people don't uh, understand also, like I blew um, one of my uh, son's friend's minds, I think at one point, because I was explaining to him that in the Indian culture, Kids will call the parents of their friends, if they're also Indian, they'll call them auntie or uncle, not because they're related. It's just a term of respect. So like, you know, one of my kids was calling one of our friends, mom's auntie, and he just assumed we were related because 
you know, in, in other cultures, if you call somebody auntie or uncle, that means you're related to them. But in the Indian culture, like that doesn't mean that means actually you're not related because if you were, you'd call them a different word based on the relationship of your parents to that person. So there's a different word for uncle. If it's your parents, older brother, younger brother, if it's your mom's sister, it's a different word for aunt than it is like, so you can tell the relationship, the family relationship to an aunt or uncle specifically by the word that's used in Hindi, but in English, it's just uncle. So these sorts of things, like, and that's just my culture, which I know obviously, because I grew up with it, but other people in other cultures, like they all have their own things like that, that we don't understand. And I think that traveling gives you a sense of, I mean, you're not going to know everything about every culture, but at least gives you a chance to say, you know, there's not a right culture. There's not like a standard, like there are other ways that people think about these things. And that's super important. Like that's, I think what it did for me. That's what I hope it does for my kids and it's doing for my kids to be able to see other places. Uh, that's why I think everybody, if they can afford it, I mean, the only reason in my mind for someone not to travel outside of the country they were born in is just if they can't afford it, right? I totally get that. But if you can afford it and you choose not to go, I don't understand that type of person. I just, I don't get that mentality. You know, it's a wonderful reminder for all of us that, you know, traveling or just getting outside of your comfort zone, you know, really helps you see the world through a different lens. And uh, thank you for reinforcing that to us again. Now tell us this, Rohit, have you ever had a low moment in your career so far? <laughs> sure. I mean, <laughs> probably every day. <laughs> Something um, you can share a lesson learned. Yeah, I think. Look, I think that the the biggest thing is just resilience around it. I mean, you're gonna screw up, uh, you're gonna make make mistakes, you're gonna misunderstand, you're gonna let something fall that you should have been on top of, and the most I can do is uh, is two things. I think really, one is always try and be better. So try not to make the same mistake twice. And the other is just to have the integrity to say to someone to their face, yeah, I should have done that and I screwed up and I'm sorry. Not pretend like you didn't do it, not pretend like it didn't happen, not bullshit and say it's somebody else's fault, but like just accept that you made a mistake and that you have the integrity to tell someone you made a mistake and that you're going to try to not do that again. And I think that goes a really long way. Uh, towards not only helping you as a person, because like the more, if every time we had some kind of mistake or I made some kind of mistake, I had to make up some reason for that. Now I've got all these lies that I have to try and remember. And eventually those lies start catching up to you. And then you become an untrustworthy person. And, and that is a much bigger challenge to overcome. Screwing up once saying that you screwed up and saying, look, I'm going to do better. I mean, that you can, you can totally overcome that. And in fact, sometimes that makes the people that you're working with, whether they're your employers or your team members or, or anyone else, like it makes them much more inclined to want to work with you again, because they're like, look, at least you stood up and you took responsibility and, and you're not giving me some line because we know so many people in our lives that don't do that. So when we do meet somebody who does that, it really stands sad, but it really stands out. Uh, it's a big, big deal. Owning it up and being responsible for your actions. I think that's the biggest lesson um, uh, and a great trait to have as well. So kudos on uh, on doing that. We have a fun rapid fire round for you, Rohit. Are you ready for it? 
I hope so. Hey, as a as a marketing pro, I'm quite sure you'll do well. So tell us the first thing that comes to your mind when I say the following. Role model? Uh, Obama. What do you do when you're not keynoting or giving a TEDx talk? Reading or writing or playing sports with my boys while they're still living at home <laughs> before they get too old. <laughs> Speaking of your boys, how do they see you and your success? I think that they are vaguely aware. Uh, I think that every once in a while they'll hear someone who says, oh, I saw, like, especially my older one, like, oh, I saw your dad's book or, or our marketing professor talked about it. And then they'll kind of put their head down and be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so I think, but I think that, that what they also see is I constantly use the businesses as moments to teach them about how to manage money, how to work with people, what sort of, you know, like we, we just talked about, like how to have integrity with what you're doing. I mean, there's so many chances for a kid to learn that as they're growing up. And I think that if I can reflect that in the business that we're doing and in the stuff that they're trying to do, like those are the lessons that will stick with them. Like I can't teach them anything with math. Um, <laughs> I, I discovered recently when my son was in um, like last year when he was finishing his elementary school and doing his grammar where you have to put the comma in the correct place. And I've written seven books and apparently I don't know how to use a comma because I failed miserably at that whole test. So there are some things I just clearly can't teach them. <laughs> but when it comes to some of these lessons, I think about bigger stuff. Uh, I, I think they have a lot that they can, they can learn. And so I try and, and incorporate that. That's awesome. So apart from the fact that you cannot put commas in the right place, I know you're being humble there. Tell us a fun fact. No, no, I wish I wish I were, but that is entirely true. I my usage of commas completely sucks, and I have a master's degree in English, so I'm not uh, not I'm well trained, and yet I still can't do that. <laughs> it's owning up, right? As part of what we discussed earlier. So apart from this, tell us a fun fact about you that you haven't shared with anyone. Fun fact. Well, uh, it's tough because I, uh, I think I've done so many <laughs> interviews and been out there that I feel like I've talked about a lot of stuff. But I, when I was in high school, I thought I was going to be a playwright and a screenwriter. That was my aspiration. And the reason why I loved it is because I loved the rhythm of dialogue. And I never thought I would write books or any of the, those things that I eventually did. But when I did start writing books and I started doing more writing, I realized that my style of writing is much more conversational, kind of like a, reading a play. And what I learned from playwriting and screenwriting was two things. One was, was just storytelling in terms of scenes. So you move from this scene to this scene to this scene, and you need a flow, so like a story structure. So I use that all the time. And the other thing I learned was the rhythm of dialogue and the fact that when you're writing a screenplay or a play, every word that you write is meant to be said out loud. And when we write marketing communications, nobody ever reads it out loud. But if they did, they'd realize how bad it is and they'd try and hopefully fix it. So that's one of my big pieces of advice. When someone says, look, I wanna be more of a storyteller. I wanna be more persuasive in what I write. I say to them, take what you've written, whether it's about us and about us page on your website or a marketing brochure or whatever, print it out, read it out loud. If it sounds like a robot, if it doesn't sound engaging, change it. That to me was the biggest lesson in terms of making my writing better. And it came from that original aspiration of wanting to be a screenwriter or a playwright.
I'm glad you're still able to do it in a different format and medium. Yeah, me too. So tell us your native language and one word to describe yourself in it. Well, I mean, I did grow up in, in India and my mom says that I spoke perfect Hindi up until five years old when I went to kindergarten and then I basically forgot <laughs> everything. So I would say my original language is Hindi, but I can't because my spoken Hindi is very, very bad. I can understand it almost fluently where I listen to like a movie or something and I don't translate it in my head, but the translation doesn't go the other way. So I'd have to say my native language is probably English and my word, because I'm a branding guy has to be non-obvious because it's on brand for me. And it's an aspiration for me also. I mean, it's something that I try and live up to because if you write a book called non-obvious, like you're making a promise there, which is that you're going to share ideas that people haven't heard. And every week when I do my show, the non-obvious insights show, that's what I'm promising to people. So this is like this constant driving force in my life to always try and have a more non-obvious perspective. So I would hope that that a lot of people who see me, they're like, oh, there's the, that's the non-obvious guy. Like to me, that's the word that's really kind of branded me professionally, but also in, captures my mindset as well. And, and we've trademarked it and everything too. So we've done the legal stuff around it as well. So uh, hopefully it's okay to go with a more branded word for that. Hey, absolutely. And it's such an amazing word. And non-obvious is synonymous with Rohit Bhargava. That's how I would like to sum up. That's what we're working on. That's what we're working on. <laughs> You're on the right trajectory. So thank you so much, Rohit, for being on our show and for sharing wonderful nuggets of wisdom and a lot of fun facts about you as well. Thank you. Thanks for the interview. Thanks, Rohit. So to our listeners, that was Rohit Bhargava, who's the founder of Non-Obvious Company and synonymous with the word non-obvious. I hope you found this episode to be very interesting. Check out his Non-Obvious podcast. And he has an amazing following on Twitter and LinkedIn. Uh, so I would say go ahead and subscribe to his newsletters as well so you can be inspired with a lot of interesting wisdom that he comes up with. Now, our three key takeaways as part of our show with Rohit Bhargava, the founder of Non-Obvious Company. One, have an entrepreneurial mindset, no matter your job and your title. It's something that could be ingrained from a very young age. Two, Travel a lot because that opens your perspective and gives you a different lens about listening to other people. And three, and the most important of all, be non-obvious. You know, that kind of disruptive thinking is very essential, be it as an organization or as a professional. And above all, the bonus takeaway I would say is own up and be responsible for your actions, act with integrity, and try to be a better person as part of your everyday life. I hope you found this episode interesting. Hopefully you can go ahead and subscribe to our Career Up Startup podcast on YouTube and all other podcast streaming platforms. Until another interesting episode with another fascinating guest, this is your host, Priyanka Kumla, signing off from Career Up Startup podcast, a podcast to spotlight Asian leaders like Rohit and interesting allies. Thank you. Mm -hmm.